So we're going to drop back and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 6 through 23. And we're going to pretty much be continuing on with this idea of maturity or, or growing in, in Christ and being, being uh, solid, grounded, steadfast, stable. And that's, uh, that's really the context here and that's what we're going to be looking at as we get into it. But just by way of reminder, I wanted to read this verse again from Ephesians chapter 4. I read this a couple weeks ago. It says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, "...till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man." And there's that word again. "...to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine." by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ. And so we are on a journey together. If you have named the name of Christ, it is our goal, it is our objective, it is our mission to grow up into maturity, to be stable, to be solid, to be steadfast, not wavering, not tossed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine, false teaching, every, everything that, that blows through the church or that we come across on YouTube or Facebook or, or what have you. Uh, we want to be solid, stable, and ultimately devoted. Devoted to Christ. And that's really kind of the flavor of this message today. In maturity, what that looks like is being devoted to Christ and not being, uh, not being lured away by lesser things, worthless things, things that are not worthy. Amen? That we would be solid, stable, and wholly devoted. You know, when we talk about godliness, if I were to ask somebody, what is godliness? Oftentimes, people will begin to give character qualities, loving, patient, kind, forgiving. And that is true. Those are markers of godliness. But what godliness actually is, it's devotion. It is to be committed to God in every way. And oftentimes when we think of devotion, what do we think of? We think of little books that we might read, little, uh, little Bible studies, or our time with the Lord in the morning. We'll call that devotion, right? But devotion is so much more than that. I mean, it is a wholehearted, single-minded, for the rest of our lives and to eternity, commitment to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that was what Paul wanted to see happen for the church there in Colossae. Paul had not been to Colossae, but uh, churches were planted there nonetheless. And a report came to Paul that there were some, some disturbing things happening in the church there, that false teaching had crept in, and that it was very possible that they were giving, giving in to these other doctrines, and it was a kind of a mix-mash of other... other uh, ideologies, philosophies, religious teachings that were being melded in with Christianity and, and becoming something altogether different. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians and he is encouraging them not to fall for that stuff. Don't, don't succumb to it. Don't give in to it. Stay solid in the things that you have learned and the things that you have come to know and believe in, in Christ Jesus. The simple truth, the pure truth of Christ Jesus and the simple gospel. That's all it is. Amen? And we're going to pick up in verse 6. So really what Paul is trying to do here is encourage the people to stay the course in Christ because Christ is sufficient. They need nothing else. They need no one else. They don't need any other kind of religious system to be tied into it. 
And so he starts by admonishing them to stay the course and to be solidified in Christ. And then each point from this point forward kind of builds one upon the other. And so we'll just kind of get going with it and we'll, uh, we'll start here. So the goal, point number one, the goal is to be grounded in Christ. Grounded, rooted, solid, a solid foundation, immovable. That's the goal for the Christian. Verse 6, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. That's such a classic verse. I love these verses. And he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So there is a, a, a receiving of the Lord that must first take place. You cannot walk with Jesus if you have not received Jesus. And we've talked about this word receive on a number of occasions. It, it means to open one's heart to, to open one's arms, is to embrace another. And so when Paul sent uh, Onesimus back to Philemon, he said, I want you to receive him, receive him back as a brother. That is, open your heart to him, love him, forgive him, restore him, embrace him. And that's, that is the beginning point for the Christian is to trust Christ, to love Christ, to receive him, to embrace him, to commit oneself to him. But it doesn't stop there. And we know this, right? It doesn't stop with simply receiving Jesus. And a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of thinking that that is all that there is. I've received him. Now I'm just going to go on about my own life, do my own thing. And maybe, you know, when I need Jesus, he'll be there on the sideline just hanging out. But that is not the way that this works. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, you must now walk in him. You must walk in him. As surely as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, you must live for Him. And that's what that, that means. To walk with, it means to live with. To live for. It means to have a life that is patterned after that of Christ Jesus. To look and act, live for, and live like Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, right? Have you ever really just sat down and thought about that? What does that mean exactly? How would you describe Jesus? You know, and, and given that, how does my life measure up to that? And so as I considered that, just, a, just kind of a, a few, few thoughts. Obviously, the, a big one is Christ was loving. And He was sacrificially loving. And He, he didn't just love the lovable. He, he loved the outcast. He loved the people that society and the religious rulers even rejected. Christ was known to be so very loving. He was so gracious. Such words of grace. He was so very kind and inviting. Anybody knew that they could, they could come to Jesus, that they could come into His presence. Children knew this. Children were welcomed. As I said, society is outcast. The tax collectors, sinners, they were always there. And Jesus would oftentimes be criticized by, by the religious people of His day for allowing such people to come into his presence. You know the story in, chapter Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 7 
there was a Pharisee, Simon, and he invited Jesus over to his house. And while Jesus was there dining with him, a lady came in who was known to be a sinner. She had a reputation for this. And she was there weeping and washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And Simon said, if, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know what kind of lady this was. And he wouldn't be letting this, this go down. It wouldn't be happening. And um, Jesus, he really rebuked Simon. And, you know, he said, this woman has been forgiven much. And therefore, she loves much. And that this is a great sign of her love for me. And, you know, she knew that she could come into Jesus' presence like that. I'm sure she knew that, she would be, uh, that there would be disdain from the, from the Pharisee, but she knew that she would be embraced and loved and welcomed by Jesus. And that was, such was the heart of Christ. But he was also uncompromising on truth and very willing to say the hard thing. You know, Jesus, he, it wasn't his goal in life to attract crowds. Oftentimes, Jesus actually actually chased the crowds off because he would say very difficult and challenging things. He would stand upon the truth, uncompromisingly so. And oftentimes people couldn't handle that, you know. They loved the, the Jesus, meek and mild and, and loving, but they could not stand the Jesus who was, who was firm on truth and would say the hard things and who would not waver. But that's what it means to be like Christ. He was obedient to the Father in all points, absolute obedience. You know, do we strive for obedience? That's a word that I think in our culture people don't like very much, you know. And oftentimes when you're trying to be obedient, people will say uh, you're being legalistic. But that's just not the case, you know. Jesus was so very obedient to the Father in all points. Christ was holy, fiercely holy. He was sinless. And though none of us could ever be sinless, to be like Christ means to pursue holiness, obedience and holiness. So how are we doing in that area? You know, how's your thought life? Are you pure in your thoughts? You know, do you, are, you know what are you looking at on your computer, on your phone? You know, are you looking at, you know, pornography, things, things of that case? You know, are you jealous in your heart? Are you envy, uh, envious towards other people? You know, are you, are you, you know, lashing out in, in anger? You know, how, how are you doing in these kinds of things? And, and if you're not married, are you living? Are you living with, with a boyfriend or girlfriend outside of marriage? These are the kinds of things that matter to God. First and foremost, He wants our heart, right? First and foremost, He wants, he wants a relationship with us, but He also wants holiness for us. And if we are to walk with Christ, that means that we are to be obedient and we are to be holy. We are to fight the battle of, against sin. You know, lives of self-control. Walking in the light. Uprightness. Amen? Christ was, was, uh, was very holy. He lived for the pleasure of the Father. His mission in life was to do the Father's will. That was His mission in life. He lived to please the Father. Living for the pleasure of another. So often, we're living for, for our own pleasure, right? But Christ was living to please the Father. He was zealous for the glory of God. Remember in the, in the temple what they were doing there? You remember how they were, uh, they were uh, selling um, sacrifices? They had, they had this, this whole system set up. People could come into the temple to worship the Lord. 
and they would say, you know what, the sacrifice that you brought, that's not good. That's not going to work. But don't worry, we have something here for you, and you can buy, you can buy this, and it's, it's you know, very costly. But you know, we don't accept this kind of currency that you have, so you've got to go over here to the money changers table, and they will switch out that, that currency, but of course that would come at a higher rate. And so they had a scam going on there, and Jesus was outraged that they had turned his father's house into a house of merchandise, a den of thieves. And he went off in that place. Remember, he threw over the money tables and made a cord of whips and just drove everybody out of there because he was zealous for the glory of God and he was not going to let God's house be turned into a den of thieves. Christ was submissive. He was a submissive man. He submitted to the Father in all points. You know, And that's, gosh, what a, what a Christian virtue that is. And we're all called to, to submit. You know that? Nobody escapes this. Everybody is called to submit on some level. That's just something that I have, have observed over the years. Even people that are at you know, what you would think to be the highest rung, business owners, they end up having to submit back to their customers. You know, it's, it's inescapable. And so the Bible is very clear that we're all called to, to submit one to another, wives unto husbands and frankly may i just say husbands to wives i, I talked about this some time back and I, I think i kind of skipped over this point i didn't handle it too well so if you would allow me just a moment to talk about that you know submissiveness between uh husbands and wives it really should be a two-way street uh, ultimately the husband is called to be the the leader of the home before god and uh, the, the woman of God is to look to the husband and, and allow him to lead. Allow him to lead. But husbands, we really need to honor our wives. And we need to be willing to hear our wives out. And there are times when, frankly, if I know my wife is uncomfortable with something, I'll honor her in that. And we won't move forward on that point, right? You know, the husband is the head, but the wife is the neck. And she can turn the head whichever way she wants. I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> I just think, you know, there's great wisdom in that. I value my wife. I value her, her wisdom and her experience in life and her godliness. And there have been times where it's like, okay, if you're not comfortable with this, we won't. And there have been times where it was like, you know what, I'm going to ask you again in a year. I'll ask you in a year. And, uh, you know, and I think that's the way that it should be. So submissiveness, we're all called to submit on some level. You know, submissiveness to leaders in the church, submissiveness to our employers, submissiveness to the government, but ultimately submissiveness to God. And Jesus was the perfect example of that. He was submissive to the Father in all points. Christ was a devoted man, wholly devoted, wholly committed to the Father and to his mission. He was a servant. Christ was the ultimate servant. He was the humble servant. He was compassionate. He was forgiving. I mean, Jesus is amazing, is he not? Is there anyone like him in all the earth? Absolutely not. If there was anybody that we would want to model our lives after, it is him. And Paul says, as you have received him, you must walk in him. You must live like him. You must pattern your life after him. And so that's the goal. That's the goal. We have received Christ Jesus. We have bowed our knee to him as Lord and king and now we seek to live lives like him that look like him paul goes on to say that we ought to be rooted and built up in him i like how the nlt puts it it says let your roots go down deep and your life be built upon him 
We want our roots to go down deep into Christ and to let our life be built upon Him. So here we have really two illustrations, that of a tree, and we get this. You know, the root system goes down deep and it creates that stability. And when the wind storms come and the rain comes, the tree is not easily blown over because it is solid. The root system causes it to be able to withstand. And so we should be in Christ. We must be stable in Him. Our roots must go down deep. And He is our solid foundation, and our, our lives must be built upon Him. We have to have that foundation, that firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And He talked about that very thing. The person who, who hears His words and keeps them is a wise person. He, he likens that person to someone who has built their house on the rock, right? And so that's, that is our goal as Christians, is to be solid Christians, to be Christ-like in our conduct, and to be stable, to have our roots go down deep, and to be built upon Christ, and to be established in the faith, Paul says. Established in the faith. And so, again, this idea of establishment, to be established, you know, if somebody, if I knew somebody was going to come and try to knock me over, I'm going to kind of get planted here. You know, I'm going to brace myself. I'm, I'm prepared for that. I've got a firm base. And so that's the idea. We want to be established in the faith. We want to have a solid base, a solid foundation. We want to be ready for whatever comes. We don't want to be blown away or knocked over. Amen? We want to be solid in Him. He says to do so as you have been taught. So this was nothing new. This was nothing new. He said, you guys know this. You've been taught this. And what he's saying is you should be living it out. Okay? It's not enough to just hear it. It's not enough to just know it. You ought to be living it. This is not new information, and this is not a suggestion. This is the way that it ought to be for the Christian. And to be overflowing with gratitude, abounding in it with thanksgiving. You know, that, that is so befitting of a Christian who has received Christ, walking in Christ, rooted and built up in Christ, overflowing with thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for in Christ, do we not? Much to be thankful for. And so as those who have come to know Christ and are walking with Him, we ought to be those who exude gratitude and thanksgiving. Okay, so this is kind of the foundation here, all right? This is where Paul is, is saying, this is where I want you to be. This is, this, is, this is what you need to be striving for as a Christian. You've received Christ Jesus by faith. Now you must walk by faith. You have received Christ Jesus. Now you must live a life that that is modeled after Him. You must seek to let your roots go down deep. You must be a solid Christian who is grounded and founded on the rock, not easily blown away. And now this brings us into our second point. You must be so vigilant not to be drawn away. So, so point one is kind of the starting point. Paul says you must be grounded in Christ. You've received Him. You received Christ, you must be grounded in Him. Point two, you must not be drawn away from Him. You must not, be, you must not topple over. You must not be uprooted, as it were. Verse 8, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I won't belabor it, but I just want to state the, the point. You must be vigilant, be alert, be on the lookout, and not be 
cheated or taken captive by that which would draw you away or entice you away from Christ. So Paul says, first, you've received him. You must walk with him. And now Paul says, you must not be lured away. Don't be lured away from your faith in Christ, particularly by philosophy here. And this, as I mentioned before, it's the love of wisdom. And there are a lot of competing philosophies in the world that we live, a lot of competing worldviews. You know, a worldview, basically, a worldview has to account for, for a few things. Origin, where do we come from? How do we get here? The meaning of life, why are we here? The purpose of our existence. The issue of morality, can we be certain about morals and, and where exactly do, do, uh, did the, the authority come from to, to give such, such morals? And then where are we going to go when this is all over? What happens, what happens next? What happens when we, when we die? And so that in a nutshell is, is a worldview. And there are so many competing worldviews. And there are many worldviews that, that really borrow from the Christian worldview and then deny Christianity. It's an amazing thing. And so Paul is saying, look, don't allow yourself to be drawn away from the purity of Christ. Don't allow yourself to be lured away from, from stability in Christ by that which is it's appealing, appealing, it's enticing. It sounds good and it makes a lot of sense, but it is false. And do not allow such things to draw you away. Now, that's what we see happening. It's rampant with, with uh, you know, teens that go off to college, right? We know this. They don't get rooted. They don't get grounded in Christ. So many of their questions are not answered. And then they go off to, uh, to the university, and they are just uprooted instantly because their roots did not go down deep. They were not solid. They, they were not grounded in Christ. And then they get bombarded with all of these worldly philosophies, philosophical worldviews, and they're enticed by it, and they're lured away. Paul says we must not do that. We must not be drawn away from Christ. But you know, so often it's not, it's not worldviews, philosophy, I think, that, that draws us away as much as it is our own sin. I think it's our own sin. I think that it is a lot of false teachings, stuff that, that is, uh, has the name Christian attached to it. And I think a lot of times we see this stuff on YouTube especially, and we don't even know it, but we're buying into something that is anti-Christ. It, it is not Christian at all. It is sub-Christian. And so Paul says you must be on alert. You must be on the lookout. You must be vigilant not to succumb to these kinds of things. But as I said, I think that it's, it's our own sinful propensities. We come to Christ, we're excited about Christ, and then all of a sudden that excitement starts to wear off a little bit, and then things start to get hard, and then all of a sudden we start looking back at the old life and romanticizing. Anybody in here ever done that before? You know, the Egyptians or the, the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, what happened? Stuff started getting hard and they said, oh man, do you remember the good days? Do you remember back in Egypt when it was just, man, we had it made? That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what we do. And so we deceive ourselves into somehow thinking that it was better back there, right? And so we had to be so careful not to be drawn away by that kind of stuff. To fall into a place of lukewarmness or, or backsliddenness 
where all of a sudden Christ is not our goal, Christ is not our aim. It's the comforts of life. It's the pleasures of life. It's, it's ease. It's security. It's, it's any, any other thing but Christ. And we are lured away. You know, it's when difficulties come. Sometimes it amazes me how when a little bit of hardship comes into my life, I am like, in my own mind, I'm ready to run for the hills. And, and then God so graciously reminds me, don't you know that you're, you're a soldier for Christ? Isn't that what the Bible says? We signed up for this. We're not to be entangled with the affairs of this life so that we may please Him who has enlisted us as a soldier. Right? And when the bombs start going off and the bullets start whizzing by us, we're not surprised by that. We're not supposed to be surprised by that. We signed up for that. And I have to say, Lord, forgive me. Somehow I, I tried to turn this thing into, you know, it's all about you know, every day is just supposed to be great, and I'm supposed to be happy, and I'm supposed to just enjoy everything and, and, and never have hardship or difficulty. You know, we can be lured away by that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, that's a, a big movement in today's Christianity in, in many ways, that that's what the Christian life is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be all good, all joy, all blessing, all victory, right? And so... We have to be careful. We can be drawn away from Christ even in that. When we, when we lose focus, when we lose sight. So, we want to be grounded. We want to be rooted in Christ. We want to be mature in Him. We don't want to be drawn away. We don't want to be lured away, not by false teaching, worldly philosophies, not by our own sinful tendencies, backsliddenness, lukewarmness. We don't want to be drawn away by any of that. Point three, we must not be drawn away from Christ because what we need is in Him. Right? What we need is in Christ. So we don't need to run away from Christ. We don't need to pull away from Christ. We don't need to be taken captive, cheated, or anything. What we need is in Him. And so we must stay right there with Christ. We must fight to stay close to Jesus. And that was point three. We mustn't be drawn away from Christ for what we need is in Him. Verse nine. It says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. The fullness of God dwells in Him bodily. This is a magnificent statement of Christ's deity. Jesus is God in the flesh. He could be no less than that. The fullness of God, the fullness of deity, dwells in Him bodily. This is also a very clear reference to the dual nature of Christ. He is truly God, and He is truly man. He is truly unique. There is no one like Him. There has never been, and there never will be in all of history totally unique, totally supreme, truly man, truly God, God in the flesh. God has not shared His deity with anyone else. And so there was a, a heresy going on in the church here in Colossae that God had several spirit beings that descended from Him, among which Jesus was one. And God shared His deity with all of these beings. 
And so it really minimized Christ. It, it really brought Christ down and, and made him a much lesser being and one, and one among many of, of these, these spirit beings, these emanations of God. And, and Paul makes it clear, no, no, no. Uh-uh, there's only one. There is only one with whom God has shared his deity in its fullness. And that is his son, Christ Jesus, the God-man. And God alone, Christ alone, is God's man, and he has all authority. All authority has been given to Christ and no one else. You understand? Christ reigns supreme. Christ is preeminent over all things and preeminent in the church. And God has endorsed him and him alone. And we are complete in Christ. We have what we need in Christ. We have what we need for life and godliness in Christ. We have the promise of peace in Christ. First off, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God through the finished work of Christ Jesus at the cross. That is the gospel message, folks. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. We were alienated from God. We were enemies to a holy God. There was no one good, no, not one. There was nothing in us that merited any kind of blessing from God, any favor from God. What we deserved, what we merited was God's judgment and God's justice. But such is the graciousness of God that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. He would be the great sin bearer. There upon the cross, our sin upon Him, the just for the unjust. And He would bear God's wrath that we deserved. For our sin, there upon Himself on the cross. And that sin was forgiven. It was paid for there at the cross. And when we trust Christ, when we turn to Him in faith and we submit to, to Him, we bow the knee, we repent of our sin, we have peace with God. That comes only through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus is sufficient for, such, for, uh, for salvation. You understand? So first we have the promise of peace. And peace, frankly, in this world. We have peace with God, and we have peace in this world when everything is so turbulent and tumultuous. We have the promise of provision. All our needs will be supplied. Christ Jesus knows what you need, when you need it, and He is more than able to meet that need. He has promised. He is our good shepherd. We shall not want our needs. He will take care of them. And so we have that promise. We have the promise of provision in Christ. We have the promise of protection. We have the protection of God. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are able to discern the, the trickery and the schemes of the wicked one. And we know that God will see us through and that God will protect us. There's a battle that is going on. We've talked about this to some degree already. But we have an enemy, a very real enemy, Satan himself and, and his, uh, his minions, fallen angels, demons, whatever you want to call them. But we have protection in Christ from even that because he who is in us, what? Is greater than he who is in the world. In Christ, we have the promise of preservation. The promise of preservation. He is going to raise us up on the last day. Jesus made that promise. We have been given to Christ by the Father, and Jesus will not lose us. He will not lose one, but He will raise us up on the last day. He's going to see us through to the very end. Remember, I talked about this before. The issue is not can a Christian lose their salvation. 
question is, can Jesus lose a Christian? And he said that he will raise us up on the last day. In Christ, we have the promise of preservation. In Christ, we have the promise of power. We have the promise of power. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is, is alive and at work in us through Christ. And we have the power to overcome sin. We have the power to love and to love even our enemies. We have the power to serve, to get outside of our own selfishness and to serve others. We have power in Christ. We have the promise of productivity. The promise of productivity. Fruitfulness. We will have fruitful lives in Christ. If you are walking with Christ, if you are rooted in Him, if you are faithful to Him, you will be fruitful. He said that. He said that, My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. If you abide in Me, you will bear much fruit. In Christ, you will be fruitful. That is a promise. Christ is sufficient for such things. And finally, and this, I'm sure this is, not, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just all the P's that I could come up with. We have the promise of progress and sanctification. We're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to grow and grow and grow until that day when we stand before the Lord in glory. And that happens in Christ. We will grow in Christ's likeness only through Christ and through no other. Amen? He is sufficient for all of these things. All of these things. Life and godliness, peace, provision, protection, preservation, power, productivity, and progress. Christ is sufficient for all of these things, and our sufficiency is in Him. Why would we go anywhere else? Why would we leave Him for another? Amen? Brings us to the next point. Now he's going to kind of give some of the benefits from this point. So he starts with, you must be rooted and grounded. You must not be lured away. You must not be drawn away because what we need is in Christ. And now he's going to begin to talk about what some of those benefits are. Christ alone, point number four, Christ alone gives us a new heart and makes us alive. Only Christ can do that. Only Jesus can take a dead wretch and raise them to life and make them new and make them clean and make them pure and holy. Only Christ can do that, and He does do that. Verse 11, it says, In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So just right there in the very beginning of verse 11, that phrase, in Him. In Him. That is a massive foundational truth, reality, doctrine, teaching, that we are in Christ. Everything that we enjoy, every, every blessing, every promise, every work that Jesus accomplished on our behalf is ours because we are in Him. Because we are in Him. We must recognize that. It says here that in Him we were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So this is obviously rooted in, in Old Testament uh, stuff, and it's just weird. It's awkward, you know, talking about this kind of stuff. You know, 
and uh, especially on Wednesday night, man, I had to really get into that. And so at any rate, what he's essentially talking about here, it's an Old Testament um, practice, a law. It was a sign that God gave to, to Abraham. And he said, this is going to be the sign of my covenant people, people that I have entered into a covenant promise with. And it is the sign of circumcision. And on the eighth day, every male child is to be circumcised. And that is kind of entrance into the covenant community, if you will. Just a side note, this is very closely linked to baptism as well in this verse. So a lot of uh, Christian churches have, uh, have deduced from that that baptism is now modern day um, circumcision, as it were. So, so that's why they baptize infants and and they would basically say that that is the initiation into God's covenant community, which is the church. And so if you've ever wondered about that, that's part of the reason. That's part of where they come up with that. We don't, we don't um, believe that. We, we believe that baptism is, is for adults. I'll talk more about that in a moment. But at any rate, it says here, uh, and, and we have been circumcised in the heart. Is, is the New Testament teaching. See, the, the Old Testament is very much about the outward, the externals. Very much about the externals. You know, God's law was written on tablets in the New Testament. God's law is written where? On our hearts. On our hearts. And so there were a lot of outward, external types of rites and rituals that they would observe. Circumcision was one of them. But now in the New Testament, it's a matter of the heart. You can do everything right externally and have a dead and wicked heart. And so Paul actually says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. And he's using the word Jew here in a very broad term to mean the people of God, essentially. And so the people of God are those who have been circumcised in the heart. People who've had a heart change. People who have been given a brand new heart by Jesus Christ. And Jesus and Jesus alone can do that. Only Jesus can give us that new heart. And then he also talks about baptism here. It says that in him we were buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the working of God. So we have also been baptized into Christ's death and risen into the newness of life. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Certainly not. God is gracious and God's grace abounds towards His people, but that is no excuse for us to just go on sinning, right? Some people look at it that way. You've heard me say this before. Some people, their, their relationship with God is, you love to forgive and I love to sin, so this is a perfect, you know, perfect match right here. And nothing could be farther from the tr uh, truth. Paul says, no, you shall not continue in it. Then he says this, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. So we have been baptized into Christ's death because we're in Christ. Just as Christ died, we have died. And just as he, he uh, rose again into the newness of life, so have we. 
And that means something. That means that we are to walk like that. We're to live like that. We've, been, we've received the circumcision of the heart. We've been given a new heart in Christ. God's law has been written on our hearts. And we have died with Christ. The old man has died. The old woman has died. And we are new in Him. And we're to live like it. We're to live holy and upright lives. Fighting against sin and living for righteousness. That is the new life. That is the new life. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can give us that. That's why we don't need to go anywhere else. We must not go anywhere else. We must not fall away from Him. Point five, next point. Only Christ can remove our guilt and disarm our accusers. So only Christ can give us a new heart and make us alive. Only Christ can remove our guilt and disarm our accusers. Verse 13. He says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we're told here that we were dead, you who were dead in your trespass. You know, this word trespass is the, the idea of there was a line there and you crossed it. There was a sign there that said, don't go past this point, and you did. We were those people. We were rebels against God's holy law, and we crossed the line countless times. And as a result, we were dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. That was the severity of our situation. That's the severity of it. That's who we were. Yet Christ has made us alive. Notice that we were dead in trespass and sin, yet Christ made us alive and has forgiven our trespasses. We've been forgiven, folks. We have received an abundant forgiveness through Christ Jesus, so much so that it has brought us to life in Him. It has made us alive with Him. Isn't that glorious? And it says that he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. This kind of speaks of the law. See, this is the issue with the law. You can't keep it. We can't keep the law. We never could keep the law. So you know what the law did? It cursed us. God's law is good and it is holy and it is right. But we cannot keep it. We never did measure up against God's law. And so we were cursed. We were accursed as a result of it. But Jesus essentially removed the, the handwriting of requirements that was against us because He satisfied the law. Christ alone satisfied God's law. Nobody else could do that ever before or after Christ. Christ alone was able to satisfy God's law and He did that on our behalf, removing the handwriting of requirements that was against us there at the cross. And it says, having nailed it to the cross. So this speaks of his having paid the penalty. When someone was crucified, they would take the accusations against the criminal and they would put it on a certificate and they would nail it right above his head. And essentially what that was saying there is that justice has been served, a life has been given for the crimes that have been committed. And that's exactly what Christ did for us there on the cross. You could essentially... Look at your own life. Every sin that you have ever committed and will ever commit in this life is there on that certificate. 
And it is there right above Christ's head where he died. And when he said it was finished, what essentially happened was paid in full was stamped on that certificate. Paid in full. The handwriting of a requirements that was against us because of the law that we have uh, broken was satisfied through Christ's holy and perfect life. And the sin that we committed that was against us has been nailed to the cross and satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Only Christ could do that. Our guilt has been removed. There is no guilt. That's why it says that there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You understand that? The weight of that? There's no guilt. There is no condemnation. Do you feel condemned? Are you condemning yourselves? Is someone else condemning you? Is the enemy condemning you? It's not Christ. It's not God. Because Christ was condemned for you and now there is no condemnation. Christ does not condemn you. Christ does not condemn you. If you are in Christ. If Christ has paid the penalty for you. And you have to make that distinction. Has He? Have you trusted Christ unto salvation? Can you say that your sin was judged on Christ at the cross and that you've been set free and that there is now therefore no condemnation for you? You can say that today if you trust Christ, if you call upon the name of the Lord, if you choose life, if you trust Him. And I am begging you, urging you, pleading with you, anybody here or anybody who's watching from home, trust Christ, call upon His name, Ask forgiveness for your sin. Commit your life to Him. Turn, turn, repent. Turn away from your old life. Turn away from your sin. Turn to Christ. He will receive you. He will forgive you. He will wash you. And He will make you brand new. Alright, verse 15. I talked about how He disarms our accusers. You know, that's what the enemy likes to do. He likes to accuse us. That's why Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's what he does, right? And he's good at it. But how is he going to accuse us? How is he going to accuse us? Sorry, I got southern there for a second. How is he going to accuse us? How is he going to accuse us if the guilt is gone? If it's been removed? Verse 15, it says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Having disarmed principalities and powers, that, that is spiritual beings, uh, demons, demonic forces, forces of wickedness. He disarmed them. He disarmed them. And he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. They have nothing left to accuse us with because they have been disarmed at the cross. Christ took away our guilt. And it says that he made a public spectacle of them. That is a public humiliation. You know, that's another thing that the enemy likes to do. He likes to mock. He likes to ridicule. I think that in a lot of ways, hell is going to be that. Among many other horrendous things. It's going to be a place of mockery where you're being mocked and mocked and ridiculed and harassed and tormented. And for the believer, that has been taken away from the enemy and the enemy has been made the public spectacle. The enemy is humiliated. The enemy is defeated. The enemy is defrocked. Amen? And it says that Jesus triumphed over them in it. And this language here Paul is using, this would be, uh, this would uh, speak of a, a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph. What would happen, a general uh, over the, the armies of Rome, they would go and they would fight against the enemies and they would conquer. 
And when they came back into Rome, there would be this, this glorious celebration that would take place. And there would be this procession through the streets and this parade, if you will. And there would be the, the priests there in Rome who would be uh, walking down the street and there would be censers and there would be incense and this fragrance going forth. And then they would be marching the, uh, the spoils of war, that which was captured and taken from the enemy. And then those who were not killed in battle but had been made slaves, many of whom would be taken to the Colosseum. They're being paraded through the streets. And at the very end, at the very back, would be the general, the conquering general, the one who led the victory. And that would be the most momentous part of the whole ceremony. People would be going crazy to, to exalt and honor this, this general who brought victory to Rome. And that is what Christ has done, you understand, on a much greater level. Christ conquered and defeated the enemy at the cross, and now he has made a public spectacle of them, and he has triumphed over them in it. He truly is the captain of our salvation. He is the glorious Christ. He is the, the general, the commander of God's army, and he has defeated the enemy once and for all. Amen? And so the enemy has nothing left on us. Try as he may, he's got nothing left. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, I'm going to read this to you. Uh, it really captures this beautifully. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Verse 33, listen to this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? God justified us. Who can condemn us? Who can bring a charge against God's people when God Himself declared innocence? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. What can separate us from Him? Nothing. Nothing. It says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor, listen to this, nor principalities or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us, folks. Christ won the battle. Christ alone won the battle. He defeated the enemy. He removed our guilt. He took away the, the enemy's ability to accuse us. Only Christ can do that. We need not go anywhere else. We need not go anywhere else. Verse 6, we must cling to Christ and not give in to outward man-made religion. Okay, so... We're grounded in Christ. We're rooted in Him. We need to be very careful that we not be lured away or deceived or taken captive. We don't want to go or need to go anywhere else because all that we need is in Him. And Christ alone can give us a new heart and a new life. And Christ alone removes our guilt and takes away the enemy's ability to accuse us. So we must cling to Christ 
and not be lured away or, or give in to other man-made religions because that's the tendency and that's what's going on here in Colossae. So Paul says in light of all of this that we've just talked about, do not succumb to these things that have crept into Colossae, into your town. Do not fall for that. Do not give in to it. So verse 16, he says, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is Christ. So this is a form of legalism, Jewish legalism, that had come into the church. And so it's like Jesus is good, but you must also keep the Jewish laws. You have to celebrate the festivals. You have to observe the dietary uh, restrictions. You must keep the Sabbath. And what Paul is saying here is Christ has perfected the law. He's kept the law, okay? He's kept it perfectly. You've been set free from the, from the law, as it were, and so you're not bound to it like that, okay? Those, those things were very much part of the Jewish nation and, and heritage and culture, especially the dietary laws in the New Testament has made it clear that we are set free from those things. Even the Sabbath, Christ is our Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath rest. And so we are not bound to keep the Sabbath law. Now, let me just say real quick, I know that there are some Christians who who love the Sabbath, they appreciate the Sabbath, it's very special to them, it is a great time of worship and rest, and so I don't want to belittle that. I don't want to belittle that. If that's a conviction and that's a way that you worship God, then praise God, but we're not bound to keep that. That's not something that the whole church has to observe to be obedient to Christ. And what Paul says here, actually, <clears throat> is that those things were a shadow. Those laws, those rituals, those festivals, that was all a shadow it was the shadow of Christ. It pointed to Christ. It wasn't so easy to see back then, but now when Christ has come, we realize that Christ is the perfect fulfillment of all of those things. Those things pointed us to the Lord, but now the Lord is here. Christ has come. He has fulfilled those things, and it is Him that we worship. Not those things, it's Him. And you understand this. I mean, we don't interact with other people's shadows right? If I see your shadow there, I'm not going to converse with your shadow. I'm going to look at you. And that's essentially what happens when people give, go back to the law. You know, Christ is the substance, but they want the shadow. They don't want Christ. And so Paul says, don't fall for that. Christ is the fulfillment. Worship him. Verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward by taking delight in false humility and worship of angels introducing into those things which he has not seen, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. So Paul says, don't let anyone cheat you of your reward. You know, Christ is the reward. He is our reward in this life and we will have a reward in eternity. And that is only through Christ. And so he says, don't let people cheat you of your reward by giving yourself to something that is not of Christ. And they take delight in false humility. You know, they, they, they look humble, they're acting humble, but they really delight in this thing. They're actually arrogant in it. And he talks about their worshiping of angels. This is mysticism. This had crept into the church, and it became a real problem for the Colossian church. For a long time, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, but in uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, the writer of Hebrews is actually making this case 
people were worshiping angels. That really crept into the early church. And he, the whole point there is that Christ is superior even over the angels. And so here he's saying, don't, don't fall for that stuff. Don't give in to that. And this is like that experience. I need that experience. Some people, they need the, the rules. Just give me the rules. Just give me a list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to be happy. That's a problem, okay? Christ is more than enough. If it's Christ plus rules, there's a problem. Others, however, are like, you know, keep your rules. I just need that experience. I need to feel more. I need to be lifted. You know, I need that, that experience. And again, that is saying that Christ is not enough. You have to have some kind of experience on top of that. And he says here, they intrude into those things which they have not seen. It's, it's oh, I had a vision. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, let me tell you what God told me to tell you. And it's like, no, you didn't. Okay, come on now. And Paul's like, they're, they're illegitimate visions. They're claiming they saw this stuff and that they heard from God and that their authority trumps God's authority and His Word. Don't fall for that. They are not holding fast to the head, Paul says. They are not clinging to Christ. They're giving into all of these other things, but not Christ Himself. Christ is the head of the church. He is the source and the health and the strength of the body. It is Him that we need. It is Him that we must run to. We must cling to the head. Amen? Verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So in Christ we have died, we have died from the law, we have died from the basic rudimentary principles of the world, and so we don't have to live like that anymore. We live in the newness of life, we live in the Spirit, we worship God in the Spirit, and we're not bound to the law, and we're not given in to all of these other worship systems, mysticism and asceticism. Asceticism there is is, uh, you know, punishing yourself, neglecting yourself, hurting yourself. It's as if Christ's sacrifice and punishment wasn't adequate, so let me just help Jesus out, and I'll punish myself on top of that. And people do that. People do that. Somehow, they, they don't understand. They haven't come to the glorious realization that there's no more condemnation. They still carry condemnation. And they think that they must punish themselves to alleviate their guilty conscience from this condemnation that, that God has not placed on them. And so what do they do? Self-abasement, self-abuse, self-denial. Paul says that, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, all those things which uh, perish with use. And this is according to the commandments of men. Verse 23 he said, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You know, these things look good. They sound good. They may even appear to be wise, but it's just self-imposed religion. It's just a bunch of added stuff that people come up with to look extra holy. And they try to lure people away. It's false humility, neglect of the body, but Paul says it is absolutely no value against the indulgence of the flesh. There's only one thing, there's only one thing that can contend with the ferocity of the flesh, and that is Christ and the Spirit of God. 
the flesh, there's only one thing you can do with it, and that's crucify it, mortify it. And that comes through the Spirit of Christ, being in Christ, walking with Christ, and it doesn't come from rules and rituals and man-made religiosity and every other thing that we can come up with. Amen? Christ alone. Christ alone. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. All that we need is found in Him, so we must not run anywhere else. We must be found in Him. We must be grounded in Him. We must not be lured away from Him because all that we need is in Him. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen.